0: Repeatedly, the Lord has highlighted in the book of Hosea the nation of Israel's sin. And he highlights their sin, and it's a recurring theme. It just continues to go on and on. That he has given them a relationship. That he has a desire to show them covenant faithfulness and care and compassion. And yet, in response, they respond by sinning. Time and time again, they Sin. He shows mercy, he shows compassion, they sin. And so, in Hosea 9:10, he's going to announce that punishment is coming. Punishment is coming because they have continued to live in the same way that they have always lived. And in fact, Hosea 9:10 and 11 are all going to make little small references to Israel's past, one of them being Baal-Pior in which Israel failed to live in obedience. They failed to live in righteousness. And he says, you're no different than they were back then. We look at these stories, and we can look at them, and we can say, how grotesque, how evil, how how abominable that they would act in such a way. And he says, hey, you're no different. You are living in the same way. Your self-sufficiency, your disregard for who I am, your thoughts that you can pursue religion in your own way, have not changed, but neither have I. I've continued to show you faithfulness. I've continued to show you love and mercy, and you've rebelled. And because of your persistent rebellion, I'm going to bring judgments. I'm going to bring punishments. But just as we've seen in other sections of Hosea, where he begins to outline and state, hey, punishments is coming, it's going to be harsh punishment. it's going to be hard to live under, also, at the very end, gives them a small glimmer of hope and says, hey, in the midst of this, I am also going to show compassion. I will show mercy. I will not completely forget. I am going to once again show my covenant love to you. And so this text really goes from one end of the spectrum, God's punishment and God's wrath to a longing look for the day in which God will once again come to his people and show them compassion show them mercy if you would take your copy of God's word and if you're able stand with me it's a longer text so if you're not able uh, don't feel obligated it's a longer text (laughs) we'll start in verse 1 of Hosea 9 do not rejoice O Israel with joy like other people. For you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. The threshing floor and the winepress shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. All who eat it shall be defiled, For their bread shall be for their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. What will you do in the appointed day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed, they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall burn them, bury them, sorry. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows the prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. The watchman of of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fouler snare in all his ways, enmity in the house of his God. They are deeply corrupted all in the days of Gibeah, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins.
1: I found Israel like
0: grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season, but they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yet woe! To, yes, woe to them when I departed from them. Just as I saw Ephraim, like Tyre, planted in a pleasant place, so Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderer. Give them, O oh Lord. What will you give them? Give them a miscarrying wound and dry breast. All their wickedness is in Gilgal. For there I hated them because of the evil of their deeds. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no, no more. All their princes are rebellious. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yes, they have to be. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. My God will cast them away because they did not obey Him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. Israel empties his vine, he brings forth fruit for himself according to the multitude of his fruit. He has increased the altars according to the bounty of his land. They have embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. For now they say, We have no king, because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of beth But its people mourn for it, and its priests shriek for it, because its glory has departed from it.
1: The idol also
0: shall be carried to Assyria as a present for King Jared. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king, is cut off like a twig on the water. Also, the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, Cover us into the hills. Fall on us. O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. When it is my desire, I will chase them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves the threshed grain. But I harnessed her fair neck. I will make Ephraim plow, pull a plough. Judah shall plow, Jacob shall break his clods. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you trusted in your own way and the multitude of your mighty men. Therefore, tumult shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be plundered. As Shalman plundered Beth-Arabel in the day of battle, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness at dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed the bales and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking him by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. We, he shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be his king, because they refuse to repent, and the sword shall slash in, its, in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me, Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like zebulun My heart turns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger.
1: I will not again
0: destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One, in your midst. And I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So it begins... And really the theme of the passage is this, that God punishes sinners but shows compassion to the humble. God punishes sinners but shows compassion to the humble. And what he's going to do is he's going to give a number of different illustrations of their sin and how their sin from the past as they're entering into the promised land is being reduplicated time and time again, even now, hundreds of years later. And he says, because of this, you are guilty. You need to be punished. But as he highlights the fact that they need to be punished for their sin, you see, sin brings punishment. It always does. That's what it deserves. He also says there's coming a day when they will turn back to me. And when they turn back to me, what's God going to do? He's going to show compassion. He's going to show mercy. And so the text begins by giving us these four illustrations of their past and how it's being lived out even today. So God punishes compromise. Illustration number one. And you have to get almost to the end of the section before you actually see it take place. But in, in the first two verses, he's going to emphasize this. Israel's compassion is seen in attributing—Israel's compromise, sorry— is seen in attributing God's blessing to the bales Notice in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, what are they doing? They're pictured as people who are rejoicing in what they have and what they're doing. And what does the prophet, through the word of the Lord, come and tell them to do? Don't do this. Stop. Knock it off. Cut it out. You have played the harlot against your God. You've done it on every single threshing floor. And guess what? God is not pleased. You have compromised yourselves. And so, if you remember when we read through Deuteronomy 28, he's going to emphasize that some of the blessings and the curses are going to come as a result of this. You shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and tend them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity." Locust shall consume all your trees, the produce of your land. And he's saying in a similar way, hey, don't rejoice. You've lived in sin. And just like Deuteronomy 28 says, hey, when you live in this way, you can expect that God's going to bring curses into your life. Don't live it up. You're actually on the verge of great destruction, of great pain. Think about what you're doing. Think about the consequences that should come. And so verses 3 through 6 really emphasizes that their destruction is going to be something that defiles them, and as a result, it's also going to defile their ability to worship God. Notice verses 3 through 6.
1: They shall not dwell
0: in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. They're not going to be able to live where God has given them to live. Not only that, they're going to be pictured as going back to Egypt. And then he says, hey, the things that you're going to eat are actually going to defile you. You have to remember that this is the nation of Israel we're talking about. They had all sorts of dietary restrictions. They couldn't eat pork. If they did, they were unclean. And he says, hey, the food that you're going to get there is going to defile you. It's going to make you unclean. You're not going to be able to approach God in worship. But notice he to highlight and emphasize this even in greater detail as he continues to go through. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. It shall be like bread of mourners to them. All who eat it shall be defiled, for the bread shall be for their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. What will you do in the appointed day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed, they are gone because of the destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. Okay, it's going to defile you. It's going to make you completely filthy and repulsive to God. And not only that, you're going to die. The idea is this. Hey, the invading army is coming in. They're coming in with swords. They see you. They cut your head off. You're dead. You think you're going to run away and run away to Egypt? Go ahead. Run to Egypt. What's there for you? Death. Either way, you are going to die. And then what does he say? Your bones are going to be picked up, and they're going to be buried in Memphis, a town in Egypt. Either way you look at it, you're going to die. And then what's going to happen to your stuff? It's just going to go to waste. And so the destruction that is coming from the Lord is going to be one that is great. And he says, ultimately, this is because the rebellion against God's messengers have become a snare for them. Notice verses 7 through 8. The days of punishments have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of your your, your iniquity and great enmity. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God. The prophet is a fowler's snare to all in all his ways. Enmity in the house of God. And what he does here is he says, hey, this is you. have arrived at the days of recompense. And you know why? You think you know. And so this is what you've said. You've looked at each other. You said, "Hey, remember that prophet that came and told us that we should follow the Lord? What a fool he was. He didn't know what he was talking about. And that wise man from God, he was insane. You disregarded God's word." And so notice what he says is going to come as a result because of the greatness of your iniquity and the great enmity Says the watchman of Israel, that same prophet that you said was a fool, that same wise man that you said he's insane, guess what? They're going to be watchmen. And, and they're going to be a plague to you even in their death. What they told you was going to happen is going to be the snare that catches you. They told you that if you kept living like this, you are going to face punishment. You said you're a bunch of fools and you disregarded what they wanted to tell you. And so you're going to have enmity, an enemy in the house of his God. The nation of Israel will have an enemy within their midst. And it really goes back to their own actions, their rebellion, their iniquity. Not only in what they physically did in pouring after other gods, but also in looking at the prophets that came to them and saying, you're a fool, you're insane. he says, hey, you deserve this punishment. Verses 9 and following is going to highlight their rebellion is similar to the rebellion of Gibeah and it demands God's punishment. And all he mentions is Gibeah. Notice verse 9 and following. They are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their and for most of us, we read Gibeah, and we're like, okay, another name of a place in Israel. But it doesn't immediately strike home. We're like, oh yeah, I know what happened in Gibeah. So let's talk a little bit about what happened at Gibeah. Gibeah is recorded for us in Judges. And if you remember, there was a Levite man. And this Levite man had a concubine. And his concubine left him. And so he went to go find his concubine. He found his concubine, and then he began to travel back to the town that he lived in. As he was traveling through the nation of Israel, he got to a Benjamite town, Gibeah, And he decided that he should sleep and get up early in the morning and continue his journey. He was laying in the middle of the town. And some old man came and found him and said, Hey, but you don't want to sleep here in the middle of the night. It's not safe. Come and stay at my house. And that night, what happens? The men of Gibeah come to that man's house and they say, We want to have sexual relations with that Levite man. Yeah, it's pretty grotesque. But it gets worse. Because what the Levite man says is, Hey, I'm not willing to do that, but I'll give you my concubine. And they abuse her all night and she actually dies as a result. And so the next day, what do they do? They cut up that concubine, they send body parts of her all over to the rest of the Israelites and they say, Look what's happened here. And in response, what happens? Sorry, God's punishment. In response, Judges 19.30, when all the people see these body parts, they say, And so it was. All who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. What they do is they go and they attack Gibeah. and they kill the vast majority of the Midianites. And what God is saying here is, hey, your disobedience is just like the days of Gibeah. You guys probably look back at that and you think, oh, what horrible evil. And God looks at them and says, hey, there's no difference from what happened in Gibeah and what's happening today among you guys right now. So that's the first illustration. It's the illustration of Gibeah. He goes on and he gives another illustration. Illustration number two is that of Baal-peor. God has delighted to find Israel, but they defiled themselves at Baal-peor. Notice verse 10 and following. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits of the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal-peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they and so what God does here is he pictures himself as, as someone who's famished. Can you imagine somebody who's famished walking through the wilderness, and then they stumble upon a bunch of grapes. What are they going to do with those bunch of grapes? Devour them as quickly as possible because it's delicious. That's refreshing. It provides them hydration, good nutrients. And he says, hey, that's what I was like. I saw Israel, and I took great delight in it. You were like a bunch of grapes. You were like the first figs on the tree, tree harvest. I took great delight in you. I care for you. And we just read Numbers chapter 23. They're entering into the land at Baal Peor. And one of the enemy's kings says, Hey, man of God, come and curse the people for me. And he comes, and he tries to do it numerous times. And God doesn't allow him to curse the nation. And right after, God says, no, I'm not going to allow you to curse this nation. In chapter 23 and chapter 24, chapter 25 has Baal of pure Notice what scripture says about Baal of pure Now Israel remained in the case in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Remember, the princes of Moab are mentioned a couple of times in chapter 23. We just read that. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, so Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. The anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out of the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you, kill his his men who are joined to Baal of Peor. And notice that's what he's saying hey same way that they went after Balaam or after I showed them in two chapters separately that I was a faithful God who was going to care for them and bless them because that's what I desired to do with my people.
1: They went off and did their own
0: thing because that's what they love. You have followed in the same path. You pursue what you love. Do You ever wonder why you sin in the same way time and time again and yet you say after you sin that way I'm not going to do that again. You go and you do it again because you're pursuing what you love. That's what you love. And until you love something more than that sin, you will continue to repeat that sin. No matter how destructive it is to your family, no matter how destructive it is to the people around you, you will continue to pursue that sin. And that's what he's saying here. Their sin is something that they love, and because of that, it's going to bring destruction. And so the remaining section is going to highlight this. Israel's disobedience results in God's punishments. Notice this in verses 11 through 14. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will breed them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre, I planted in a pleasant place. So Ephraim will bring up his children to the murderer. Give them, O Lord. What will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breast. I was like, hey, the punishment that is coming is your children are going to die. Ephraim's name means fruitful. He's supposed to be fruitful, abundant, having lots of children. And God says, no more. You're not going to be fruitful. If you have children, they're going to die. If you get pregnant, they're going to die. I'm not even going to let you have conception most of the time. And when you do have children and they do get to grow up, what does he say to them? So Ephraim will bring out his children to the murder. You're effectively just raising your children so that they can go and meet their murderer when the enemy comes in to judge you guys. And he says, what should I give you? What I should give you is a miscarrying womb and dry breasts, because it's more pleasant for you to have your babies die in utero or to die while they're being breastfed than for them to grow up and be killed later. That's the severity of God's punishment that he's saying is coming to come upon them. Because God hates sin. Israel's future punishment is certain. There is no means of escape. Notice in verses 15 through 17, he's highlighting this idea. All their wickedness is in Gilgal. For there I hated them because of the evil of their deeds. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yes, they, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. For my God will cast them away, because they did not obey him. And they shall be wanderers among the nations. Notice what he's highlighting. He's just saying over and over again, hey, punishment is coming. Why is punishment coming? Because you're sinners. He says you can't escape your sin. He goes on in illustration number three. Illustration number three. Verses 1 and 2, he compares Israel to a vine. Israel empties his vine, he brings forth fruit for himself according to the multitude of his fruit. He has increased the altars according to the bounty of his hand land. They have embellished his sacred pillars, their heart is divided. Now they have held they are held guilty. He will break down their altars, he will ruin their sacred pillars. Israel attributed her prosperity to her own self-sufficiency and, as a result, is going to be punished. And really, it goes back to God's promise of provision. Israel is enjoying the fruits of being in the land, enjoying the blessings of being in the land. They're emptying the vine. What else would you do? If you had a grapevine in your backyard, you're going to just let the grapes mature and then rot and fall to the ground. No, you're going to go and empty it. You're going to enjoy it. But the idea is that they're self-sufficient. According to the multitude of his fruits, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillar. They do this all for their own self, and he says, that's in contrast to what I have instructed. Notice Psalm 88 through 11. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. That same vine imagery that you see in verse one empties his vine as if it's his. Notice here the Lord is the one who's bringing the vine. The Lord is the one who's planting the vine. The Lord is the source of provision. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep roots and filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its bows. She sent sent out her bows to the sea and her branches to the river. And Israel has become self-sufficient. God says, your self-sufficiency denies the very truth of who I am. And as a result, guess what? Israel's rejection of the Lord will result in deadly, and decisive punishment. And you have that recorded in verses 3 and 4. For now they say, we have no king. Notice the self-sufficiency here. Probably the idea of king refers to God himself, not their physical king. They had a physical king. Notice the idea of it being the actual Lord and not a physical king is highlighted in the second line. We have no king because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? And he goes on, he says, They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgments judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. And so what God says is, hey, you lived in a self-sufficient way, and I'm going to punish you. Hemlock is an extremely deadly plant, and where is he having the hemlock sprout up? In the fields. It's going to mingle with their food. It should have been a source of provision and care and nourishment for them, and it's going to be the source of their punishment. They think they're self-sufficient, and they can just pluck of the vine and eat it, and they're taking care of themselves, and he says, don't be so haughty. Don't think that you're so self-sufficient. Because look what I'm going to do to the very thing that you think you're self-providing for yourself. I'm going to ruin it and me- make it the means of your destruction. So God's coming judgment will remove the religious and the political sources of Verses 5-8 highlight this idea. The
1: inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon. And so they're losing
0: this source of hope. We talked about the calf of Beth-Avon last week. It was a calf that they'd set up to worship in replacement of worshiping the Lord. For its people mourn for it, and its priests shriek for it, because its glory has departed from it. The idol has also shall be carried to Assyria, So this calf is going to be carried off as a present for King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off. So the hope spiritually in this calf is lost. But then he goes on, he says, not only that, but the political hope is also lost. Their king is cut off like a twig on the water. I don't know if you've ever watched Winnie the Pooh, and Winnie the Pooh goes and plays uh, Pooh Sticks of a pointless game if I understand it accurately you pretty much just drop twigs in a river and then see whose twigs come out on the other side first but like it's it's really kind of a game that has no skill required to win right it's kind of just by chance right that's the idea that's the picture like a floundering helpless king he's just on the water like, you can't control whether or not you win at boost in a similar way the king has no control of what he's doing or where he's going and then he goes on and he says um, <clears throat> alright I'm looking at the wrong side of the text it'll help if I'm on the right side alright Verse 8, also the high places of Beth-haven, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. And so notice he returns once again to the spiritual places of worship and says, hey, you're going to look at those places, they're going to be devastated, they're going to be ruined, and the people themselves are going to look at the hills and they're going to say, hey, just fall on us and kill us now and put us out of our misery. Don't let the enemy come and kill us. And so Israel's rebellion against God, it's easy requirements will require a harsher punishment. And so in verses 9 through 11, he's going to describe the, the fact that he's been a good god to them. Oh Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. So he's highlighting Gibeah, the, the nation of Benjamin, or the tribe of Benjamin and their evil, and he's like, you've just been the same way. There they stood, the battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity, did not overtake them. But it is my desire I'll chasten them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. Ephraim is a trained heifer. They love to thresh grain, but I harnessed her fair neck. I'll make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow. Jacob shall break his claws. And so he's saying, hey, I had easy requirements for you. Threshing grain is not necessarily an easy work, but it's easier than plowing. It's also easier in the sense that when a cow is marching around threshing grain, what can they do? You're not supposed to muzzle the ox while they tread the grain, right? And so he's like, hey, yeah, there are requirements. You have to keep working. You have to keep threshing the grain, making sure that it gets crowned and stuff. But at least you can eat while you do that. But what is he going to do? He's going to have them go and plow. And so he's highlighting the severity of his punishment. And then he concludes in verses 12 through 13, he says, God calls out Israel. God calls out Israel an opportunity to pursue. God calls out and offers Israel an opportunity to pursue repentance. Notice what he says. What's the solution to all this? They've pursued disobedience. Every turn they've pursued disobedience. He says, Sow for yourselves righteousness and then reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way and the multitude of your mighty men. He's effectively saying, hey, stop trusting in yourself. Stop trying to find your sufficiency in yourself. You are not sufficient. Same thing is true for many in our world today. So Israel disregards the Lord's call and seals her fate. He gives her this final call to respond and obey, and they don't. And notice what he says. Therefore, tumult shall arise among your people. All of your fortress shall be plundered. Ah, as Shaman plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle. A mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness at dawn, the king of Israel, shall be cut off utterly. So Israel disregards the Lord's call and seals her fate. And so he says, hey, Because you've lived in disobedience, remember this local story about great wickedness that happened from an invading army? And we don't know exactly what it refers to, this shaman plundered Beth Arbel. But no doubt the people in Hosea's day knew exactly what that referred to. And he gives us a little hint of just the devastating consequences of that attack. Notice what he says, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. That's a brutal picture of the violence of war he says, that's what's going to happen. At dawn, the king is going to be removed. The idea is this is imminent. God's punishment is coming. God is tired of your sin. He gives a final illustration of the punishment that comes from compromise. God's compassion was unmistakable in his care for Israel. In verses 1 and 2, he's highlighting, actually it goes all the way through verse 4, he's, he's illustrating God's compassionate care of bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. And He says, well, what happened though? God's bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And what does Israel do repeatedly, time and time again? They sin, they disobey, they disregard God, they go in their own way, and he says, you're doing the same thing. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt they called my son." As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed the bales and burned incense to carved images. I taught them him to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with a gentle cord, with bands of love, and I was them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. And so he's highlighting, he's, he's using Ephesians four or Exodus four, twenty-two and twenty-three. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. And that's how God brought the nation of Israel out. Like a firstborn son that he loved and cherished and cared for. And what do they do in response? They go and they worship other gods. And so God's patience was obvious to all. Deuteronomy 131, and in the wilderness where you saw now where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries a son, in all the ways that you went until you came to this place. But Israel's rebellion will bring God's punishment, just punishment. And he says, "Hey, you disobeyed, and so God's going to bring just punishment." In verses five through seven, you see this. He shall not turn, return to the land of Egypt. But the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to repent and the sword shall slash in the cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me though they call to the Most High. None at all exalt him. God hates rebellion in all its forms. And in verses 5 through 7, there's a little bit of a difficulty with the text in New King James and you see it in the New King James in contrast with the, the CSB I think either way you arrive ultimately at the same conclusion but the New King James implies that they cry to the Lord but they're disingenuous though they call to the Most High none at all exalt Him they're not exalting Him in their cry out to the Lord the CSB implies that they cry out to the Lord but it's not going to result in God's blessing though they call to the Most High He will not exalt them. He will not respond to them. Either way, the idea is, if it is real, it's too little, too late. And maybe it's not even real, and so God's not going to respond. But ultimately, it's a response to their rebellion. You see, God still hates rebellion. There's countless ways in which we choose to rebel. One of them is unbelief. What do you believe? What is your source of hope? What is your source of confidence? When you die, how do you know that you will be with the Lord? And the Bible clearly tells us that we can know that we have eternal life. And it says that we can know this because we know Christ.
1: See, our sin
0: separates us from God. Our sin Causes God to look at us and it, he has to judge it. But he's made a way for us to escape that judgment through Jesus Christ. Jesus came, he lived a perfect sinless life, and then he died. Why did he die? Why would the Son of God die? That's absurd, right? Isn't God all powerful? Doesn't God care for his own Son? The answer is yes, it's all part of God's plan. For your good, for my good. So that you and I could see his sacrifice, so we could believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, receive forgiveness for our sins, and get the righteousness of God. Unbelief is the greatest sin that you and I can commit. And God hates rebellion. God hates rebellion when it's in self-sufficiency. He hates rebellion when we misappropriate our faith. It's easy for us to place our faith in all sorts of other things, right? Most of you know about my love for Oreos. I've cut back, way back, on my Oreo consumption. But I still love a good Oreo. So Tyler and Alicia sent me a picture of Grant's birthday Oreos. They stuck candles in the frosting. Four candles and two Oreos for eight candles for his birthday. That's amazing. But we can place our faith in Oreos too, right? Overeating, eating too many Oreos because of the stress of life is a misappropriation of our faith. God says turn to him and we turn to Oreos. God says turn to him and we turn to TV. God says turn to him and we turn to pursue the sex. Multiple ways that we misappropriate God hates rebellion. And you see that in His text. God hates rebellion. And he looks at any rebellion and he compares it to the worst rebellion. We like to look at our sin and compare it to other people who've done worse sin. We're like, we're not as bad as them. But he looks at the sin that they've committed and he looks at the past sin of the nation of Israel and he says, remember these horrible situations? It's equal... Because in God's eyes, he doesn't look at your sin and say, you know, is your sin as bad as the worst people? Maybe not, so they can probably go to heaven. He looks at your sin and he says, there's sin there. It's unacceptable. It needs to be covered. It needs to be atoned for. But notice the text doesn't end there. The text ends with a note of God's compassion. God's plan. God's compassion for his people knows no end. Notice verse 8. God's just announced, this is what will happen. But as this happens, I'm still compassionate. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma and Zeboim? Those are two of the towns that were really close to Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, Sodom and Gomorrah were so sinful that God consumed them with flaming... uh, pale and just destruction, uh, sulfur and brimstone. And and, and so he's comparing it to that. He's like, how can I do that to you? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come with terror. Because there's a limit to what he's going to do. They're still coming with destruction. But not all of them are going to be destroyed. But then notice, he goes on and he says, in addition, God's people will return to him in love and fear. Notice in verses 10 through 11, they shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from, the, from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses Says the Lord. It's interesting, right? He says that I will not come with terror, and yet, when he comes, he's roaring like a lion. Now you hear a lion roar at the Blank Park Zoo, and it maybe isn't so ferocious because the lion's behind the big fence that's supposed to keep the lion away from you. But if you heard a wild lion make that sound and look intimidating at you, that be a fearful thing. And notice, that's what God is comparing himself to. He says, he will roar, the Lord will roar. When he roars, then his sons, the nation of Israel, shall come trembling from the west. They're going to return. And they shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses. I think what this is, is a reference to the ideas that you see in Deuteronomy chapter 4 through 6, where God wants us to fear him. Not, not just fear him because we're afraid that we're going to get smashed by him. but real fear of God is this combination of this idea of love for God and obedience to God. And when these two meet together, that's what God says is real fear. It's a real understanding of who God is and what that means for how we live. And so God's anticipating the day when they'll come to him in fear, in true love and true obedience. And he says when that happens... Those homes that got smashed, they became great places of murder for their sin, those will once again become their homes. And so God's compassion is bountifully available for those who will humbly return to him and rejoice in him. And for us, that's primarily available through Jesus Christ. That's how you and I can to the Lord and have a relationship with him. Believer, God is not shocked by your sin. You can live in sin for a long time and you can think that you're hiding your sin from God, but when you finally come to him in repentance and you confess your sin to him, it's not like God is like taken back by your sin and like, oh wow, that took me off guard. No, God knew about it. And God is a God who delights in showing mercy. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Unbeliever, God knows your sin too. And he's made a way for you to receive forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ. See, God has made a plan for compassion. And his plan is available if we will receive it. As we conclude, a couple ideas. Our sin is not hidden from God. He looks and he sees their sin. They think that they're self-sufficient. They think they can find their own way. And God calls them out and he says, Your sin is not hidden. I see it. The same thing is true for you and I. God does not somehow have our sin concealed. You can't hide it. But notice God also accurately judges our sin. You and I, we like to compare our sin to other people. He compares our sin and he says... You see your sin? You see the worst sin? They're the same. They're a defilement of you. And it needs to be judged. He doesn't look at it and judge it in the same way. do. He accurately judges. He says, all sin is an affront against my character. We also see that God punishes sin. text highlights that over and over again. He gives multiple illustrations in multiple ways he states that he will punish sinners. But the text also highlights the fact that God will show grace to them. And so I hope that you have seen your sin cannot be hidden. That God is an accurate and just judge. But that there is a way of hope. And that way of hope is found in Christ. And that you would rejoice in a great delight in the hope and the compassion that God provides us. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the fact that you are a faithful God. You've shown us your covenant faithfulness in your word. You're a God who does not forget about our sin, that you punish sinners, but that you're also a God who delights in showing compassion and mercy. We pray that we would delight in who you are today. In your name we pray.